0: Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk About Race. I like to end the show by saying, every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you for listening.
1: For more information on Let's Talk About Race, Visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1 or check us out on Instagram at LTARshow or www.letstalkrace.net. The following program has been produced by Grassroot News Northwest.
0: Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 9 FM. You are listening to listener-supported KBOO Portland. Love volunteer-powered community-funded radio? Then join the thousands of individual supporters who make KBOO happen. We only have until December 31st to meet our end-of-the-year fundraising goal, so donate today. kboo.fm slash give. That's kboo.fm slash give.
1: From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. Today, we'll spend the hour discussing racism in America. First, Jodie Armour joins us with his provocatively titled new book that seeks to rethink race and language. Then Seward Darby examines the role of women in white nationalist movements in her book Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. That's coming up in just a moment. KPFK pacifica radio this is rising up with sonali and i'm your host sonali col you can watch this program on free speech tv and listen to it on pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide this next interview we're about to air focuses on one of the most provocative and dangerous words in the american vernacular the n-word the conversation you're about to hear tackles the controversy around the word and necessarily involves the mention of the N-word in its entirety repeatedly from my guest. If such language disturbs you and offends you, you may want to tune out. The US's system of mass incarceration and racialized poverty go hand in hand. Black Americans are disproportionately criminalized and fill the prison system. While many on the left liberal part of the political spectrum chalk this up to a racist justice system, not enough link it to the prevalence of poverty in non-white communities. My guest Jody Armour has written a new book with an explosive title where he makes those links and calls for a rethinking of race, language, justice, and the law. Jody Armour is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. His earlier book was called Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, The Hidden Costs of Being Black in America. He's also a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute Center on Crime, Communities and Culture, and the Race and Criminal Justice Correspondent for our program. joins me to discuss his new book, whose subtitle is Race, Language, Unequal Justice, and the Law. Welcome, Jodi, and please start by telling us the title of your book and why you chose to name it that way.
0: Yes, thanks very much for having me, uh, Sonali, and this book actually addresses the issues we've talked about through the years, you and I, Mm -hmm. uh, that keep uh, rising in uh, the headlines, keep coming up like a, you know, kind of, Injustice Groundhog Day over and over. And um, I'm going to try to uh, address some of those kind of perennial concerns. Uh, I do try to address some of them in this book. It's titled Nigger Theory. I use that blood-soaked epithet advisedly. I understand that many people find that to be a form of even hate speech, that it's a word that has deep roots in a racist American past and um, has often accompanied violence toward black bodies. And so I uh, approach it with all of that understanding and with all of that freight in mind. I also recognize though, that there are some black writers and artists and other people who have been very thoughtful and used the word, reappropriated the word, inverted, transvalued the word as part of an oppositional discourse, um, often an oppositional political discourse, um, and it can be used that way. People like, oh, let's say Dave Chappelle, Richard Pryor, the last poets, Tupac Shakur, Nas, Cube, Ice Cube, Jay Z. Um, you know, there's a there's a list of a significant list of inward virtuosos, if you will. That is artists, Black artists, who've used the word to attack uh, the characterization of some Blacks as niggas, because it was a Sonali after all. One of the other inspirations for the title of this book comes from Chris Rock's infamous routine that launched his comedic career in 96 in a, uh, a routine called Bring the Pain, And when she goes back, walks back and forth in front of an all black audience and says essentially this, it's uh, like a civil war going on in black America and there's two sides. There's black people and there's niggas and niggas have got to go. I love black people, but I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they let me join the Ku Klux Klan. Should I do a drive by from here to Brooklyn? He goes on like that for half an hour and his core definition of a so-called nigger sonali is a morally condemnable black criminal, a black person who's done crime essentially. When you go through his examples. And so, by that definition, the up to 90% of young black males in some of these inner city neighborhoods are going to wind up in jail on probation or on parole at some point in their lives are niggas. Are we willing to condemn that fraction, that portion of our own community, of the youth of our own community, to that stigmatized status? We should say hell no, but we've been saying hell yes through the 90s through the odds when uh, people like Bill Cosby and other blacks were supporting this politics of respectability based distinction between good and bad Negroes. And I'm saying in this book, this is a moment in which we need to put this to rest for good and never again allow ourselves to distinguish between so-called good Negroes and bad Negroes, or so-called lovable black people and morally condemnable niggas.
1: The book has an introduction by Melina Abdullah, who is a well-known Black Lives Matter activist based in Los Angeles, and also uh, the introduction is written by Larry Krasner, the Philadelphia District Attorney who is uh, progressive in his views on the criminal justice system. And I want to read for our audience the first sentence of your first chapter where you say the jagged edges N-words, unparaphrasable power can focus attention on the strong but irrational and unreliable urge to morally condemn violent black criminals, and it can also invite law-abiding people to stand in political solidarity with such criminals. What do you mean by that political solidarity? Who should be, who, who is the audience that you are saying needs to have this political solidarity?
0: First and foremost, I think across the board, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for a radical reset in our mentality when it comes to all criminals and all people caught up in the criminal justice system. But I'm first and foremost aiming this at any and everyone who says they wanna make deep cuts in mass incarceration. That's a lot of people. And I'm saying any of you who say that what you wanna do is make deep cuts and racialized mass incarceration, you have to, for one thing, um, abandon the liberal Jim Crow narrative that you've been operating by for um, a while now—good, oh, maybe ten years or more now. Um, what, what I mean by the liberal new Jim Crow narrative is the one made popular by Michelle Alexander's book by the same title, *The New Jim Crow*, in which she said, "says we went from 300,000 in 1980." People in prison to 2.2 million by the time we get to the mid to late aughts, um by the government arresting and convicting uh, mostly low-level nonviolent drug offenders. That's what she said. And John Fa pointed out a couple years ago that the fact of the matter is that's wrong. That the, when he looked at the state system in which 87% of the the prisoners reside, only five to six percent of them were there for anything that could be characterized as low level nonviolent drug offense. And that was probably an inflated number. When I take my students to San Quentin, I don't see any low level nonviolent drug offenders. I don't say I won't say there's none there. I've never seen them. So that is not really what the problem of mass incarceration is about. It's about violent offenders and serious offenders. So if you want to make deep cuts in racialized mass incarceration, you, you know, you're going to have to overhaul your moral framework and moral compass um, when, you know, under, if, if, if the problem were just low-level nonviolent drug offenders then Michelle Alexander's right, you wouldn't be asking people to make much of a change in their moral compass and moral framework because we would be saying, oh, low-level nonviolent drug offenders, they're just like us. They haven't done anything that bad. You know, why should we go, we go around condemning them? When you're saying, no, this person committed a violent assault, a murder. A serious crime and and so they aren't so easily sympathetic in that way and still we have to find a way to find in them the possibility of redemption restoration rehabilitation and not as we have been for 30 years, approach them in the spirit of retribution, retaliation, and revenge. That's kind of what I'm getting at.
1: So it sounds as though you're sort of referring to you the politics of respectability, which is often something that I've, you know, heard other people critique. It also reminds me of um, some of the conversations, the immigrant justice movement, where there's been this attempt by politicians to distinguish between the good immigrant and the bad immigrant uh, in order to justify who can be let into the country. Um, is that is that along the line long- of what you kind of were referring
0: to? Yeah, the politics of respectability is the idea that it's important in the black community that we look good in the eyes of whites so that we'll get favorable treatment by white policy decision makers when they're balancing costs and benefits and making broad policy judgments. And so it's important for us to maintain a good racial reputation. And the way you maintain a good racial reputation is by just dis- clearly distinguishing and distancing yourself as good, responsible Negroes from those who are bad Negroes. And you make it clear that uh, good Negroes are not to be lumped together with bad Negroes in the eyes of whites so that you'll get more favorable treatment for the black community as a whole. That's the idea behind respectability politics. It um, was a a motivating kind of principle in the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, It may have had a place and a time, but that time has come and gone. The Black Lives Matter movement made it real clear that they weren't playing respectability politics when it came to these victims of police brutality. Many times these victims of police brutality would be questioned as to their um, character you know, well, why was he selling Lucy's? He was doing, a, he was engaging in a criminal act. Or Walter Scott, you know, wasn't keeping up with his child support payment when he, payments when he ran away from the police officer. Um, one of the things that Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter Act has made real clear is, Walter Scott should ha- not have to be morally immaculate to be treated as a decent person, as to, to, to be treated with human dignity and respect. Nor should Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, you know, or any of the hashtags that make up the Black Lives Matter movement. They said, we aren't gonna play that respectability politics game. You know, you look at all of us as in this together, you know, and we're standing in solidarity with the least of us. None of us deserves state imposed brutality of any kind. So yeah, this is one of the reasons I use the N word too, is many people who practice respectability politics are especially upset by the n-word. You know, they're, they're the ones who went after gangster rap in the 90s and even the late 80s and said that it was such a scourge and it needed to be eliminated from the community. Police would actually arrest Ice Cube on stage. I, I When I interviewed him after my play, uh, he said when he when he said these words, he was told by police officers he would be arrested and they would. And these are the words he was arrested for Sonali police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown and not the other colors. so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. You listen to all the lyrics of that song. It's a political stomp song, very much, right? It's a political anthem. And to characterize it as something that is worthy of arrest and jailing is tells you what's at stake. That's one of the other reasons I use the N-word. When we're talking about transgressive, uncomfortable language, symbolic communication or non-symbolic communication, how much power should we give the state to regulate that speech? You know, when we're trying to regulate hate speech, what might we unwittingly give the state the power to come in and regulate people like me, armor? and say, oh, that N word, we're gonna call that hate speech and we're gonna crack down on you. And then we're gonna crack down on all these other black dissidents and black dissenters. I worry about giving the state that kind of power, anybody that kind of power in the name of hate speech regulation.
1: Judy, you're an academic, and you write in your book the experience that you had when you first began using the n-word in an academic setting, why you made the conscious decision and the reaction that it elicited. I imagine that that would might have been the beginning of the of the journey that started this book that you're that you've just written.
0: Yeah, it did. It started the book I've written that you know the linguistic use of the n-word um as that kind of um rather linguistic form of symbolic communication the non-linguistic form is the afro i've grown as a result of writing this book and i'll talk to you more about that perhaps a little later right for our tv
1: audience um they they would know what you're saying but maybe our radio audience can find our interview online and watch it
0: (laughs) yes yes i uh i have a, a a big afro that i've been rocking since high school actually it's beautiful thank you um but it's gotten me uh, uh, some side glances and made me look a lot more um, suspicious, uh, frankly, uh, to a lot of people. But I started using the N-word at American Association of Law School's annual conference uh, back in 1999. I was uh, supposed to address this Tweedy assembly, uh, assemblage of, of law, professor, law professors um, about criminal justice matters. You know, uh, I was writing about uh, social cognition research and information processing approaches to the to human cognition and the cognitive unconscious and all that kind of stuff back then. But before I went, I ran in, I had to go down to Terminal Island down in San Pedro and address the guards about unconscious bias there. And I was given tour of the cell grounds and I saw all the faces looking at me from the bars behind the bars, they reminded me of my own dad who was behind bars for five years, the people I grew up with. So by the time I got to um, New Orleans to give my AALS annual speech, I wasn't feeling like a lot of genteel language, you know, uh, calcified language of the academy. And so I told them as much, and then I broke into 16 bars of inward laden, gangster rap from Ice Cubes, America's Most Wanted, with lines uh, like uh, kicking street knowledge, why more niggas in the pen then, in college? Because of that line, I must be a cellmate. That's from the nigga you love to hate. And a lot of other lines that were politically laced, but also profane and deliberately disruptive. The reason I was doing it is for the same reasons Black Lives Matter adopted the methodology that it adopted in 2013, 14, and 15. Uh, uh, it's two kind of I think signature methodologies are one disruption. Let's shut it down. Let's cut through our collective complacency about this, this, you know, racial oppression. This burning issue. And then number two, let's have some uncomfortable conversation once we shut it down. And so, um, my, you know, for me, that N word was disruptive. And you could imagine in that academic setting, I mean, among those sedate colleagues, it was quite disruptive. Um, the breaking the break into sixteen bars of. Nigga love to hate, Um, and it compelled some uncomfortable conversations, and so that's why I used it back then, and I'm drawing on that same spirit with uh, my with this book now.
1: Who? Should use it, and that is a big question in America today. There was a time when um, white folks thought it was okay for them to use it, and they would say that it was okay for them to use the N word because if black folks could use it, so should they? Freedom of speech, etc. White comedians have gotten in trouble for using it, um, and and you know then there becomes th- this the beginning of this whole discourse about um, who who should who should be allowed to say it, or who should you know be uh, sanctioned in in being able to use the word. And it also raises questions about Black identity, right? Who is, quote unquote, Black enough?
0: Raises all those questions, which is why one of the other reasons it has to be in the title of the book, because it's Mm. about, the book is about that. I have a whole chapter dedicated to just reflections on language, ordinary language, philosophy, So we get a chance to sort some of these questions out and think them through. And at the end of the day, I'm going to give you the summary, the executive summary uh, version of it, Sonali. Um, Non-Black people should not be using the word. If you've been a member of the category that has been historically the target of the epithet, you are then in a position to use said epithet, that same epithet, with irony in a way that nobody who has not been the historical target of that epithet cannot use it, right? You can invert its meaning and transvalue its meaning in a way that someone who has not been the historical point of that violent epithet, you know, simply can. not So that is what, that, that, that's the, 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 the quick and dirty. Um, also, I understand that it's a powerful cultural property. And a lot of white people do want to appropriate it. You know, people like Bill Maher would love to sprinkle his punchlines with the N-word. And if he could get away with it, he would, because it's that powerful as a cultural property. When Kanye West said, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke, you know, the n when he added the N-word to the end of that couplet, he added, hundreds of thousands of sales to his bottom line, right? Because it's a word with that kind of it's unparaphrasable power, that kind of um, cultural uh, cachet, right? And power to it, and sharpness and edginess and all the rest that, yes, a lot of white folks would love to start, to, to, to start appropriating it and using it, and this is one time they can, and some of them are upset about it, but sometimes you're just going to have to if you find yourself having those kinds of uh, temptations, take it as a moment of Zen and sit back and say, at some point, maybe there's, I I shouldn't be privileged to just, you know, appropriate everything all the time. You know, maybe it could be some kind of reasonable limits to what I have the power to appropriate. And if, uh, and this may be one one of,
1: how how can the discussion around language and race be a doorway toward transforming our criminal justice system because at the end of the day we're talking about far too many human beings locked up in our nation's prisons who are disproportionately black
0: yes And the N word better than any, more than any other word I can think of in the English language, there's no other word like it. It more otherizes its referent than any other word I can think of. It more monsterizes, demonizes, otherizes its referent more than any other word I can think of. And that's especially what we do, not only to black folk generally, but to criminals in particular and to black criminals in particular, particular, right? I mean, the, the, the kind of the, the, the most distilled, most concentrated form of otherness and um, unworthiness in the American imagination is a black criminal, a criminal who's black, that combination of concentrated stereotype laden otherness. You know, is why another reason I use the N word, and that's how we think about prisoners. So often we they, we just think of them as so much toxic human waste that are be to be dumped somewhere and forgotten. We don't have any real care and concern for them. Not only, you know, do we not have the kind of con- care and concern that we have for black people in general, which we showed in Katrina when we left those people standing in the Ninth Ward for four days without any help, and you compare that to our response to the 9-11 victims in New York, and there was a panic of empathy for them, the black lives after Katrina just did not matter. That's why, for four days, FEMA couldn't get us act together to go help them. But we're not just talking about that kind of indifference that back, that, that, that white America is showing toward black America generally. But now, you have a kind of also otherness rooted in the fact that you committed a criminal act and therefore you are a wicked criminal. You're morally condemnable. You know, you aren't just an innocent civil rights era victim of Jim Crow segregation in the South, you know. No, you actually went out and did something. You hurt somebody. You may have preyed on the most vulnerable member of your own community. And that's what's really going on in our prison system. Contrary to what Michelle Alexander says in the new Jim Crow, um, we did not get to from 300,000 prisoners in, in 1980 to 2.2 million by the, time, and by the late aughts by arresting and convicting a lot of low level nonviolent drug offenders. Most of them are violent and serious. That's just the, the reality. And so if you're going to make, if you're gonna make deep cuts and racialized mass incarceration, you're going to have to make how you look at these people undergo a fundamental change. You're gonna to have to yourself undergo a fundamental change in how you look at them. Think about them, talk about them, and, and talking about them, in, in, in other words, when you niggerize them when in the way that Chris Rock does, when he says, I love black people, but I hate nigger. When you use that word in that way, you are facilitating this whole process of making it acceptable for us to treat these people in the way that we're now treating them. You know, we're the hotbed right now, the epicenter of outbreaks of COVID-19 are all around the nation in prisons by far. I think out of the top 20 places, it's either 17 or 18 of them are prisons and jails. It's outrageous mm. or, or or certainly the top 15. I don't want to exaggerate in any way because it's jaw dropping just as it is. And we don't care about it because we've niggerized them. And that's what I'm trying to get at.
1: Jody, uh, I am also wondering how important it is, of course, for us to understand that that word, of course, originates in American history linked uh, to the very American institution of enslavement of black people. And that historical context is you know, it's obvious, but it's also sometimes lost. It's also been swept under the rug because today's white conservative Trump-loving America wants to cleanse itself off of any culpability because that is past, that's history. So how does that word link the historical origins of this nation with existing current racism?
0: Oh, it does very plainly. You're exactly right. Etymologically, it has deep roots running into a blood-soaked racist past where people like me were chattel slaves for people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. And that I hear those echoes in the word whenever I hear it uttered on the one hand. On the other, I also hear the defiant. The, the, the defiant refusal to submit to that status. When I hear someone like Tupac say uh, in one of his dirges, how many brothers fell victim to the street? Rest in peace, young nigga, there's a heaven for a G. I'd be alive if I told you that I never thought of death. My niggas, we the last ones left. When he's talking, using the word my niggas, in the, that language, in that context, there are no stronger terms of endearment or words of solidarity, right? And so it is a double-edged word in that way. It can both reject and accept. It can embrace and push away. And it's it's part of what language itself is all about. You know, I tell my students all the time, we're word workers. There are four occupations in America with bread and butter is word work, writers, poets, rappers, and lawyers. And so, and I got all that from my dad, you know, who was locked up. He was looking at 22 to 55 for possession and sale of marijuana. And all he had was word work between him and rotting in a jail cell. He put those words together in the right order. And the next thing you know, Armour versus Salisbury, I teach it in my criminal law class. he's, He's walking a free man because of the power of language. And so I want us to constantly think about the power of language. Think about Toni Morrison when she says, you know, we die, that may be the meaning of life but we do language that may be the measure of our lives. So certainly that's what the part of the other reason, the N word is entitled.
1: Well, Jody, we could talk about this for so much longer, but I highly encourage our audience to pick up a copy of your book and read it themselves. I will not say it, please say it again so people know where they can find it.
0: Sure, absolutely. Nigga theory, race, language, unequal justice in the law, Amazon, you know, the usual suspects, LARB books, all the usual suspects. Thanks so much, Sonali. It's always great talking to you.
1: The book has a forward by Larry Krasner and an introduction by, uh, sorry, a forward by Melina Abdullah and an introduction by Larry uh, Krasner. Jody, thank you so much and good luck with the book. Thank you. My guest has been Jody Armour, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He is also uh, the race and criminal justice correspondent for our program. I'm Sonali Gohatkar We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RUWITSonali. On Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. If one pictures the white nationalist movement that President Donald Trump has wooed and relied on, one immediately imagines gun-toting white men. But white women? are also part of the movement in ways that may not be obvious to the rest of America. In a new book called Sisters in Hate, Author Sayward Darby profiles three white women who embraced white supremacy. Sayward Darby is an editor-in-chief of The Atavist magazine. She previously served as a deputy editor of foreign policy and the online editor and assistant managing editor of The New Republic. She's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Elle, and Vanity Fair. Her book's full title is Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. Welcome to the program, Sayward.
2: Thank you, Sonali. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Why did you want to explore the role that women play in the white nationalist movement that has become so mainstream since 2016? Um, As I mentioned, we generally see that it's men who dominate these movements.
2: Definitely. And I I think that it was actually the absence of women in the coverage of the movement in 2016 that piqued my interest to begin with. Um, You know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, the way that the so called alt right was covered in the lead up to the election or in the immediate aftermath when they were crowing about victory, uh, a lot of the media coverage referred to the movement as a, you know, bastion of angry white men, which isn't to say that it's not that, but it struck me as. Likely wrong (laughs) that women were not involved and probably involved in a very uh, important way. Um, And, you know, that was combined with the fact that at the time exit polls showed that more than half of white women had voted for Trump, which ultimately it turned out to be more of a plurality. But still, uh, it just seemed to me that there was something missing in the conversation about the far right. And so I went looking for women. Um, They were not difficult to find. (laughs) Um, They were there on the internet. Um, And what I also found, and and this is drawing on um, the work of a lot of really wonderful historians and sociologists, uh, particularly uh, feminist ones, um, that women had been very deeply involved in various iterations of the far right going back over time, uh, but are often written out of that history and underappreciated in terms of the roles that they play and the harm that they do
1: right we had actually interviewed an author i think within the past year uh, or a couple of years who talked about the women of the kkk um usually forgotten element of that hate group and of course when we look at the trump administration today which is basically the uh, top leaders of the white nationalist movement that have made it into government we see plenty of women Defending Trump, uh, you know, even just setting aside his family members, you have the Kellyanne Conways and the Kaylee McConneys and uh, many white women who have become the face of the Trump administration. So, but you explored the the grassroots. Um, tell me about th- there were three women that you profiled very different seeming women. Let's start with Karina Olson, um, who is a very interesting case who seemed to have gotten radicalized in the years after the September 11th attacks and somewhat as a result of her brother's death. She's an embalmer?
2: Yes, um, she is an embalmer by trade um, and uh, has been and was before she even got involved in this movement. Um, And Karina's story, I think, is a really important encapsulation of the fact that the reasons people get involved in organized racism and and the hate movement are not necessarily because they have such a deep-seated disdain for people that do not look like them. Oftentimes, they arrive on the doorstep of the movement with racist feelings and, and impulses, um, whether overt or not, that really don't look or sound so different from those shared or expressed by you know, mainstream white Americans, frankly. Um, but what pushes them into more, into more radical territory and into the grassroots of hate, as you described it, uh, are, are deeply personal um, and individualized factors. So uh, they're people who are seeking something meaning, camaraderie power um you know a a sense of a narrative about the world and their place in it and in karina's case she was someone who had always been attracted to extremes um that's actually why she got involved in embalming i mean she was good at it and it's a trade that you know pays the bills Uh, but she also saw it as kind of this dark weird thing that people didn't understand and she wanted to understand it and then with regard to her her brother's death um you know, she was devastated by, by his death. He drowned um, when he was when he was 20. Um, and so there was that. But then on top of that, she was really seeking to understand the kind of person that he was. And she knew that he was into punk music and hung out with guys in leather jackets and, you know, studded wristbands and boots and things like that. And so she looked up what her skinheads on the internet, and that led her into, you know, the racist answer to that question. Um, and she found people there who liked her and wanted to share their way of thinking about the world with her. And as a person who had struggled for you know community and a sense of meaning in her life, that was attractive. Um, and so it's uh, in some ways like a more alarming story to me at least because of the very familiar Reasons that you know we all suffer loss. We all suffer, you know, at different times from a sense of seeking purpose. Um, and for some people, uh, that can be enough to push them into, you know, a hate movement.
1: So she ended up um, finding her, through, through exploring what her brother had been involved in, uh, I suppose finding, going down an internet rabbit hole of hate, um, and there are these dark corners of the internet that attract people who are looking for answers or whatever, so was it that sort of thing, these um, hate groups online that ended up radicalizing her?
2: Absolutely, yeah, and I should clarify, uh, just for her brother's sake, um, that years later she discovered that he was more of an anarchist uh, huh. skin, and so was wow. not actually in any way involved with the far right, and so, um, but that was not something she discovered, I think perhaps even after she ultimately de-radicalized and was no longer in the hate movement, but yes, um, you know, she found Stormfront, which is the oldest uh, internet forum for conversations about hate, it's been around since the mid-90s, and it's very uh, 101 in comparison to uh, Twitter, YouTube, things like that. But it's still, you know, a very robust space. And she radicalized in 2008, 2009. And at the time, Stormfront, in the wake of Obama's election, actually saw a surge in users. About 100,000 people, I believe, signed up in the year uh, after Obama became president. And so, you know, within that community, she found people who were, you know. Peddling different ideas about race, about politics, um, and if she echoed them back, those ideas back, they, you know, were supportive of that and told her that she was great and so important, and um, and you know that that was enough. Um, she found a sense
1: it, of community.
2: Right, exactly, exactly. And ultimately that did extend offline and she did become involved in groups uh, in the real world, but the the internet was absolutely crucial to her radicalization.
1: What happened to her? How did she turn out? Yeah, so she
2: has a very interesting story. She she went really deep, uh, frankly, into the organization. She was involved in uh, a couple of different organized groups. So um, the National Socialist Movement, which is exactly what it sounds like, Something called Pioneer Little Europe, PLE, which um, was an effort to establish sort of white power enclaves around the country. So the idea was, you know, kind of take over neighborhoods and have like minded people living around you. She was involved in a pocket of that in Montana. And then also something called the Northwest Front, which was run by a longtime neo Nazi named Harold Covington. And she, sort of in a whirlwind way over a few years, uh, passed through those groups and in some cases was quite powerful and influential in those groups and then ultimately decided she didn't want to be a part of the hate movement anymore but much like radicalization is very individualized and and frankly selfish it's all about you know the individual you know what do i need what what am i seeking getting out of it is is similar um and so in her case she felt like the things that she had been getting out of uh, organized hate so again camaraderie a sense of meaning those were diminishing. She'd kind of had falling, falling outs with people. Um, she didn't like the way that they talked about her as a woman. She didn't like the way they t- that she talked about, uh, excuse me, they talked about um, her daughters. I should have added that she was a divorced mother of two at the time. And, uh, and then she also told me that, you know, she decided she really couldn't stomach violence, um, which it's, it's funny, you know, people tell stories about themselves. You're able to look back and, and um, maybe you describe yourself as, virtuous in a way that it seems, it seems odd that, you know, you were not thinking about violence for all that time and then decided, you know, you couldn't abide it. Um, but regardless, she, she did de-radicalize. She left the movement. Um, she actually was an FBI informant for a little while uh, reporting on the Northwest Front. And then she was pretty quiet for a while on the internet um, after that. And then I found her through the Southern Poverty Law Center, which had done an interview with her uh, about leaving the movement, and by the time we met in person, she had actually become Muslim. She had converted
1: which, to Islam. Amazing. Correct.
2: Yes. Yes. And I think that you know the reasons are not dissimilar. It's a community. Um, it's a you know a way of seeing the world. It's a, a, a you know a place where you you find purpose. Um, of course, it is not <laughs> it is not the hate movement. It is something you know sustainable. Um, and I spent time with her at the mosque. Um, where where she uh, worships. And uh, I was struck by you know that it seemed like a place where she was really seeking to belong and felt like she, she belonged. I how how does that... she
1: explain looking back on those times when she got radicalized, even though she found a sense of community in the nationalist movement and then left it because she realized she was losing that sense of community. Did the mm-hmm. politics of the movement and her role in it, is it something she reflects on today?
2: Absolutely. And I think that one thing that's important to think about is, again, that you know, it's, it's not that she had such a robust, um, complex idea about the beliefs in the movement. She was parroting things. Um, and, and I think a lot of people who get involved in this space uh, are doing that. They're, they're parroting what they hear online. They're, they're you know, repeating things, because when they do, they get lots of likes and, and people telling them they're great. Um, but what they're, what they're saying is not so different from, again, a more like mainstream, uh, way of thinking and talking about race. Um, it's maybe augmented, amplified, um, but it's not so radically different. You know, maybe they're using the slurs instead of saying things like bad neighborhoods, but so there, yeah, so there's
1: euphemisms and then there's just straight talk. And so,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that, you know, when she reflects on that time, um, at least in, in speaking to her, you know, she certainly realizes how abhorrent it was to be involved and to say and, and do the things that she did. Um, but I also think that she sees familiarity between, for instance, that world that she was involved in and, you know, co- conservatism as we've seen it really transform in the last, in the last couple of years.
1: The other two women that you profile are quite different. Let's talk about Isla Stewart, whose Twitter account, I think this is the person that you've also uh, profiled, says a former public figure, mom, and artist, most censored Christian mom in America, fake news target and stalking survivor.
2: Yes. Um, Yes. So, um, Ayla uh, used to be what she considered a very radical feminist. Um, She was very into, uh, you know, herbal medicine, and she was pro-immigration, and she was anti-death penalty, and uh, studied midwifery, and was, was, I think, got a master's degree in something called women's spirituality from a college in California. Um, and then ultimately soured on that side of things, um, soured on that, that way of being in the world. Um, she had wanted to have a lot of children, and in her telling, she felt like there were a lot of feminists who judged her for that. Um, in speaking to people who knew her before she radicalized, there's also a sense that she was just someone who really wanted to stand out and have a platform and be admired and a role model, um, particularly to other women, and she felt like she wasn't, Getting that. Um, And she started to move into a more conservative way of being in the world um, and ultimately, you know, fully into white nationalism. Uh, And in that space, she calls herself Wife with a Purpose. uh, And uh, a lot of her content um, is about motherhood, about femininity, and about how those things should be put to use in the service of, you know, advancing the interests of the white race.
1: Wow. So she seems to embody that aspect of the white nationalist movement that wants to return to old fashioned patriarchy. I'm thinking of, uh, I believe it was her name as Abby Johnson, the speaker at the Republican National Convention, who you know, as an uh, anti-abortion activist, uh, but who just a few months earlier had talked about how voting rights should be limited to one vote per family, per household, and that it should be the the father or the husband who who decides if there's a a disagreement, who decides who the vote goes to. This old-fashioned, very um, anti-feminist, traditional, patriarchal, um, you know, male-centered ideology. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, uh, Ayla at one point on a blog of hers talked about reading Abby Johnson's book Mm -hmm. years ago, not not recently, years ago. Um, but I think that's a, a nice reminder of the ways that, you know, more fringe ideas are, you know, finding their way into the mainstream, like the Republican National Convention. Um, but yes, um, you know she refers to herself as a Trad wife, which is a phenomenon um, really made for the digital age uh, where you can hashtag it and it's you know women who uh, are interested in, well, a couple of different ways of thinking about the past. Some of them have this kind of Rockwellian idea of what it means to be a wife and a mother. Some of them have a more um, kind of pioneer approach where it's you know back to the land, back to nature, um, back to fundamentals. And uh, I think she's a little bit, Ayla is a little bit of both. But, you know, when you ask these women, and I did ask these women, um, you know, what about the sexism? What about the misogyny? They just don't agree that that's what's happening. They think that the patriarchy is good and right and natural. It's the way that, you know, nature intends for the two sexes to relate to each other. And that um, for women to be more like men, quote unquote, um, is to deny the power of the female body, the female spirit, you know, what it means to be a mother and a partner. Um, and it's a lot of mental gymnastics, <laughs> frankly, but um, but that's very much the line that they push. And I think that there are women who, uh, you know, in internet communities um, pertaining to mothering, pertaining to, uh, you know, any, any number of things, uh, they, can, they can find some of that language and some of those ideas very appealing.
1: Well, it's really interesting is some of these women who want to, who seem to be longing for an older era are extremely active on social media, using the tools of the digital age to promote this backward ideology. Um, let's talk about, speaking of online figures, the third uh, woman in the group of three that you profiled, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name correctly, Lana Lochteff it's lana lana mm-hmm. bloktev so she so she is someone who um a little bit more empowered i think of herself in in the white nationalist movement she's uh seems to be a social media influencer
2: mhm very much so i mean you know i think Ayla was she's not so much on social media in part because she was deplatformed in a lot of places but also because she's decided to take a break from public life, whatever that means. But Lana is both an influencer, and she's a little bit of a mogul, frankly. Um, she and her husband run a platform called Red Ice that is Infowars, but even farther to the right. Wow. Um, so it's a place uh, where it's a lot of conspiracy theory promotion, um, and it existed. They, they actually ran it uh, before they became white nationalists. And around 2013, 2014, they really started shifting hard in that direction. Um, which, uh, was, I think for people who kind of already existed in that conspiratorial space online, surprising, um, because that tends to be a bit more like a, well, it can be more of like a left-leaning type environment, um, you know, anyway, I could go on and on about the conspiracy, (laughs) conspiracy economy, but, um, but if you think about it, you know, the, the very foundational ideas of the hate movement um, are conspiracy theories. The idea that white people are under threat, um, that they are the real targets of racism, that there's a white genocide happening, those are all conspiracy theories. And so, um, so Red Ice really started to promote those ideas and bring people on who promoted those ideas. Um, and it's it's quite a hub, frankly, for, for the hate movement as we know it today. And Lana speaks regularly at white nationalist events, conferences, things like that. Um, and she has a pretty large following uh, online. So uh, it's interesting because, you know, to go back to this question of why do people radicalize and what is it that they're looking for, I think she's a good example of someone who, yes, is looking for purpose, is looking for narrative, is looking for, you know, all of those things, community. Uh, But in this case, she's also making money off of it. Um, And uh, you mentioned the women of the KKK earlier, and I know that uh, maybe it was Linda Gordon who you were speaking to, um, the historian, um, and she has talked about how the, at the, you know, zenith of the KKK in the 20s, one of the reasons that people got involved is because they saw a way for it to be profitable to them. Um, And economics are never fully, fully uh, uh, disaggregated um, from from this space. Um, And so I think Lana is a very good reminder of that.
1: So just as we see the women in the Trump administration claiming that their very presence is proof that Trump is not a sexist, do you see the white women in the white nationalist movement also making similar claims that their presence serves as a way to um, undermine some of the criticism that the movement gets?
2: Absolutely. Uh, That's something they will, that's kind of their their first line um, Hmm. when somebody suggests that the hate movement is sexist or misogynist, um, which to be clear, it is. and you know, we've seen women who are involved in sexist and misogynistic movements over time, sometimes who've led them. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly being the, the best example of that, probably. Um, you know, a deep, incredibly powerful um, uh, anti-feminist movement that frankly, you know, shifted politics in, in the 70s here in the United States um and so you know there's a long history of women being involved in anti-feminist uh, spaces and movements and in this case they are very quick to say well if it was sexist why would i be here if, if they were mean to, to women why would i be here um and i think that frankly that has been one reason that over the last couple of years especially the media has been hesitant to talk about women um, in the movement. I think that there's this assumption that no like women wouldn't actually be involved in something that's sexist and misogynistic. Um, And so we we struggle, I think, uh, to hold in our minds the possibility that these women might actually be the victims of sexism and misogyny, but they are also the perpetrators of another kind of harm, or in some cases, that exact kind of harm, that they can uh, you know, be both basically, um, and so they—they they definitely serve that function of saying, you know, this is not a sexist environment.
1: Well, finally, what did you conclude about how white nationalism and women's role in it can unravel? I mean, the future of this country depends on defeating white nationalism. We have been here before. We have gone down this horrific path. It has nearly destroyed the nation. We've come out of it, but never fully, and we're back in it again. And so from your study of women in the white nationalist movement, what do you think is the opening for those among us who are feminist and who are uh, anti-racist, who want justice for all people and equality?
2: Absolutely, you know, I really think that the first step, and this is something I thought a lot about as a white woman working on this project, is not being so quick to say, these people have nothing to do with the world as I see it, that they are over there, they're so weird, you know, they've made these bad choices, like, you know, I I, I have nothing to do with them. Um, And I think women, especially, uh, and progressive women, um, have a responsibility to recognize the ways in which they are complicit in similar Systems. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot with regard to Black Lives Matter this summer and uh, the the language and sort of you know promises surrounding that is that it's one thing to say we would like the police to stop shooting innocent people um, often in their homes. Uh, it's another thing to say, I would like to see a radical restructuring of how opportunity is distributed in this country, um, as it pertains to education, as it pertains to housing, as it pertains to any number of things that you know are just part of the fabric of daily life. And I think that progressive women especially have a responsibility to recognize how to, you know, disengage from uh, forces that uh, are inherently unjust um and that actually are the same forces that these women on the far right really feed on so um so i think that's you know sort of looking in the mirror being willing to say well what are the ways that maybe i'm i'm not so different um or that uh i could be more different um and so i think that that is extraordinarily important that women play a vital role in that um and i think the other uh important Role that women can play is calling a spade a spade. So, uh, women in white nationalism um, can infiltrate spaces that men don't do so easily. So, you know, again, mothering groups or, uh, you know, PTAs or, uh, you know, local farm co ops or or any number of things uh, where, you know, they say, oh, you're worried about the health of your family, you're worried about the safety of your family, like, me too. Um, have you ever thought about it from this perspective? Um, and I think that progressive women have uh, a really important role to play to say no, to, to really call something what it is, even if you know it's euphemistic, um, and even if calling that out is uncomfortable, uh, I think that that is incredibly important. Um, I realize that that's not exactly a silver bullet for you know the the moment in which we we find ourselves and, and for a truly just future and I think that there are so many other steps that are required by you know the government if we have a new one soon um, by uh, you know tech companies by by any number of entities and I think that women especially have this like grassroots responsibility uh sort of person to person neighbor to neighbor uh woman to woman um and you know this is really the moment to act on that
1: well say word i want to thank you so much for joining us today uh give out the website for where people can find out about your work maybe the outavist magazine
2: Yes, well, I would love for people to read The, the Atavist. Um, but The Atavist is totally separate from my from my book. Um, the Atavist is magazine.atavist, dot com, And we publish one fantastic long-form narrative story every month. Um, so I hope people will like that. Um, and then my personal website is sayworddarby.com. Um, and that's where I've been keeping all of my writing and coverage of the book. Uh, And you can also find details about how to order the book there.
1: We'll post links to both of those on our website, say where it's spelled S E W S E Y W A R D D A R B Y dot com. Thank you so much and good luck to you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: My guest has been Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief of The Atavist magazine. She previously served as the deputy editor of foreign policy and the online editor and assistant managing editor of The New Republic. She's written for The Atlantic, Washington Post, Elle, and others. We've been talking about her new book, Sisters in Heat, American Women on the Frontlines of White National I'm Sonali Kohatkar online at RisingUpWithSonali.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify
0: Rising Up With Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RUWithSonali That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files.
2: complete
0: you are listening to KBO Portland 90.7 FM and kbo FM online is your organization planning a virtual event looking